I need to know everything Who and the what and the where I need everything Trust me, I hear what you're saying But I like it's new what you're telling me I'm curious, George I hop in the Porsche It's five and a horse I'm ready for war I'm coming for throws To turn to a ghost I need to know everything Now you'll be surprised At the info you get Is by letting them talk Hey everyone I'm Ashley Asty, And I'm curious Aren't you? I'm Curious Podcast Brings the unfamiliar closer I'm telling stories and sharing conversations with people who remind us that love demands we move toward justice and that we're all connected. This opening music is called Curious George by Nate Rose. All right, let's get to it. I'm ready for smoke. I need to know everything. Who and the what and the where I need everything. Trust me, I hear what you're saying, but I like it's new what you're telling me. I'm curious, George. I hop in the Porsche, it's five and a horse. I'm ready for war. I'm coming for throws to turn to a ghost. I need to know everything. Now they ain't go harder than me. There were so many good things about this conversation with Jason Bryant, but I must say one of the moments that really stuck out to me is when he talks about building an unprecedented future, he calls it. And he's talking about the difference between dreaming and vision casting. And dreaming could just be, you know, not really rooted in reality, just some sort of whimsical fantasy. But vision casting is rooted in your reality, and it's about taking steps every day, today and tomorrow and the next day to work towards it. And I feel like Jason embodies that so fully in his personal work and life and commitment to how he chooses to show up in the world, and also as the director of restorative programs at CROP organization, which is creating restorative opportunities and programs organization. What's so cool about CROP is that it is a nonprofit organization based in California that's directed by proximate leaders that have over 110 years of experience with the criminal justice system. And they are on a mission to reimagine reentry through a holistic, human-centered approach to advocacy, housing, and the future of work. Anytime I talk to someone from CROP, including Jason, I feel this sense of purpose and innovative leadership and how much this matters and this belief, and again, that commitment to taking steps today and tomorrow and the next day, this commitment not only to leading in the community, but personal leadership and development. I feel like Jason has led this unexpected life. He spent 20 years incarcerated in a California state prison until 2020, so just two years ago, when his sentence was commuted by Governor Newsom in California, who ordered his immediate release from prison due to his remarkable contributions in transformative work while incarcerated. Because Jason from early on when he was incarcerated committed himself to transformation and change and to education. He got his MA in philosophy from California State University while incarcerated and an MS in psychology from California Coast University and then connected with his actually his co-defendant and the founder of crop organization Ted Gray. They were both incarcerated and they started building up crop from inside and developing this uh, program for people who are incarcerated to become certified as alcohol and other drug counselors and just personal development, personal leadership courses while inside. It sort of just snowballed from there and kept growing. And now that these men are are home, they are leading this on the outside. So Jason is oh such a treat. Um, 
visionary and thoughtful and intentional. So without further ado, let's just dive right in. All right, Jason, I, uh, I think I want to start by talking about love, which I don't know if you were prepared for. <laughs> <laughs> we went right in with the tough topics. Oh, yeah, we, we got to go deep right away. I mean, Richard Morales, who um, other people might have heard on my podcast, he, he talked you up, Jason. He said, you know, you're a visionary, you can go deep. So we're going to do it, right? <laughs> okay, let's go. Hopefully um, I live up to the expectations. Absolutely. <laughs> you can live up to it for sure. Oh, yeah. Uh, so yeah, let's, let's start with some love. Um, I know you were, you were interviewed in Vanity Fair, I think over three years and it started and you can correct me if any of this is wrong, but I think 2019 while, or at least while you were still incarcerated. Correct. It was 2019. Okay. And then I know they interviewed you again. Like I saw the interview also when you came out in 2020 mm-hmm. and it had been like 44 days or something like that. Yeah. And I love that they asked you the same questions both times. Mm-hmm. And so you answered in 2019, they asked you a question about what's the last sound you hear at night? And you mm-hmm. said something like the sound of your TV, perhaps, or the sounds of the prison. And then when you had been out in 2020, you've been out for 44 days, you said that you fall asleep to the sound of your wife saying, I love you. Good night. Yeah. So, so tell me about the sound of her voice saying that. How does that make you feel? That's interesting. So... Wow, that's that's a really deep question, and it's it's also like revealing, I think, of how sometimes we take things for granted. Mm-hmm. And let me unpack that a little bit. So, you know, one of the things I'll, I'll give you some context. One of the things inside of prison that you come to appreciate, or many people come to appreciate, I did specifically, was all the little things that we miss out on in the free world. Um, You know, the ability to tell someone you love them, the ability to enjoy a home-cooked meal. And I think that like the longer people are immersed in life out here, the easier it is to forget those moments that you didn't have those things. Um, So like my experience today of hearing my wife tell me that she loves me goodnight, which she still does. um, It's it's normalized now it's normalized and i don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing in 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 the one sense i could say it's bad in the sense that um there's not as much there's a scarcity principle right like something is valuable because there's only a limited amount of it so like when she would come visit me on the weekends when she would make a visit you know whether it was you know once every two weeks or once a month like that time was so sacred because it was so scarce. Yeah. And then out here in the world, it's like we, we live together. We're raising kids together. We work together. We share an office space. And there's so much exposure to one another. It's, it's, there's a temptation to take that for granted. Mm-hmm. So like even the question, it, it sparks something inside of me about how, how incumbent it is upon us to really appreciate every moment that we have because tomorrow's not promised to anyone grateful for what we have uh so i appreciate that question and yeah so i i don't honor it as much as i need to those words and those expressions of love even if they have been normalized because you know that's part of life like we we live together and when we go to bed we lay down and say i love you good night um it's it's important to take pause and acknowledge the gift of love and the gift of time with the people that you care about Mm, 
well, you don't disappoint in terms of depth, I just want to say. <laughs> um, and I, I think that's such because I wanted to ask you too, like, has it shifted over time? And I totally understand the part about the almost it becomes normal. And so there's not that same gratitude, perhaps, or honoring of it. And I'm so grateful that you have this opportunity for it to be normal for it to yeah. just be something that you do every day and you know, not that take it for granted, but that it can just be a daily part of your life that it wasn't before. Yeah. And so I, I want to ask a little bit more about that too, because so you were incarcerated in 1999. And I believe that when your wife married you, at least it was expected that you'd have at least 10 years before you'd even be eligible for the possibility of parole. Yeah, a little bit more. Um, oh, more. Okay. Yeah, I was sentenced to 26 years to life. My I've known my wife since I was in high school. We were high school sweethearts. We reconnected in 2011, but my estimated parole date at the time was not 2025. Mm. So, so almost 15 years until I was expected to be uh, given the opportunity to sit in front of a parole board mm. and, and uh, you know, speak to my freedom, my potential freedom. Uh, mm. so, so, yeah, tell me about, how that feels, that kind of love, because I feel like there's constraints in it. Of course, you're meeting across it or in a visiting room or eventually when you had family visits. And yet to have someone show up for you in spite of all of that, can you unpack that a little bit? Sure. I, I can share a couple different facets of that kind of love. So one is like an unbound sense of gratitude for the commitment and the sacrifice people inside, speaking of myself specifically, like don't really appreciate the level of sacrifice that is involved in loving someone or caring for someone who's incarcerated. Um, while it's true that like I was the one wearing prison blues and that was put in handcuffs, so much of her life was suspended um, because of her commitment to me. So much of her time was sacrificed in you know, making the trips three and a half hours each way to come see me, answering the phone, paying the phone bill uh, to accept my calls, uh, you know, sending me mail, um, putting money on my book for commissary. Like these are all sacrifices that people who love those of us who are incarcerated make willingly. You know, nobody's twisting their arm to do it. And on the other side of that, you know, there's many people who encourage them not to. Yeah. There's, there's a very... Uh, widespread zeitgeist about having relationships with people in prison. And, you know, I think that I know that my wife suffered many slings and arrows from friends, quote unquote, friends, loved ones who said, you know, you could do better than this. This guy's doing life in prison. So there's, there's a lot involved in far as, as far as like the appreciation that should be shown to people who care for those of us who are incarcerated. Uh, Cause there's a lot that they give, there's a lot that they give up. Um, another facet of that kind of love, and this, this may not be flattering, but it's the truth in my experience is it's very imaginative. Mm. It's very imaginative and almost like a dream. Mm. So when I think about the years that my wife, Sandy would come to visit me, the time that we spent, whether it was in conversation on the phone, through letters or in person in a visit, in a visiting room, was thinking about what life would be like outside of prison. Yeah. Like where would we live? 
um, you know, at the time, like early in the relationship, would we have kids? What might our life look like where we travel? Um, so, so much of it was this, this process of creating dreams together yeah. that didn't fully materialize like they did in some ways, but they're not exactly how you imagine it in your mind in, in reality, right? Yeah. So uh, it's, it's a very imaginative type of love because you're so restricted in the ways that you can convey affection or appreciation for each other. Um, and there's no real weight of like the responsibilities of life included, mm. yeah. right? So. Did you ever feel a sense of maybe powerlessness of like not being able to show up or present or just, I don't know. Yeah, just not being there for her in the ways that you wanted to. So, I mean, there's, there's many times over the course of um, our nine years together while I was incarcerated that I felt powerless, if you will, like whether she was going through struggles at work or, you know, having some type of emotional distress and like you, you, I would hear it on the phone, but I can't just, you know, go see her or take her out for a meal or buy her flowers. It's just not, it doesn't work that way. Right. But as far as the, the most powerless I ever felt in our relationship was it was the first time I held my son mm. um, after he was born. So he was born in uh, on January 11th of 2019. And the first time I held him was February 9th of that year. And that was a really like powerless and painful moment in my life, like joyful, but, but painful in the sense that on the Sunday morning, when my wife and my son had to leave the family visiting, uh, I knew I had to stay. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so, so that, that type of like helplessness, like I can't go with you. I can't be with you. Um, when you need me the most, like a newborn child is a heavy responsibility. So, you know, that, that, that feeling of powerlessness, um, I think it metastasized over the course of the, the remaining year that I was incarcerated um, in the sense of like, if my son would get sick and I would call and I could hear him, you know, coughing in the background, or if he, he fell and hurt himself and I could hear it, like the instinct is I want to pick my child up and hug them and lavish them in love. And I couldn't do those things. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it was really compounded even more so in November of 2019 when I called my wife and she let me know that she was pregnant with our second child. So at that point, I felt, you know, it was, it was almost beyond powerless. It was like I was in despair because mm-hmm. I had two prospects for freedom, which both had been shot down. I had been, I had applied for uh, SB 1437, which said that if, you did not actually commit the homicide, then you shouldn't be charged with murder. And the sentencing court decided in October that I didn't qualify for that. I had also been awarded 1170D that said that if a, an incarcerated person's behavior was so exemplary, then they should uh, be recommended to the sentencing court to be released because they're no longer a threat to society. The same court denied that petition, which was issued by the, the head of CDCR. So then when I, when I found out that my wife was pregnant again, I was in despair. Like now I've got another three years before board. My wife has a one-year-old and another one on the way and I have no way to contribute. And yeah, powerless is, it doesn't quite give the texture of, of how I felt. 
that word despair is like, I, I feel that I almost want to like pause and, and take that in. Um, and such an interesting moment because it's this time of supposedly culturally like tremendous joy, right? Stepping into fatherhood a second time. And yet you're feeling the sense of despair. Yeah. Right. And, and, you know, just to add, like, like it doesn't, it, it doesn't escape me the perspective, which I think there's, there's some validity in it. Like the, the responsible conversation is you probably shouldn't have kids when you're in prison. Right. I mean, just thinking about what it means to be a parent, the most important aspect of a, of a parent, in my opinion, is to be there, is yeah. to be there. Right. Um, but, you know, taking into account at the beginning of the year, before my son was even born, was born, I had these two, what I thought were really great prospects to my freedom. You know, I, I wasn't the actual shooter. So a law had passed saying that I shouldn't be in prison. And the, the head of the department said that, uh, you know, my behavior was so good over the course of my incarceration that, that he would recommend uh, to the sentencing court that I be released. So at the beginning of the year, I had these great prospects for freedom. So by the end of the year, you know, it, it, the, the realization that, uh, those things didn't happen. Uh, that's when the despair really hit. Mm. Yeah. Talk a little bit more about fathering from a distance. I know you ended up luckily not doing it for too long because you ended yeah. up coming home. Um, but can you describe that experience or what you, and your child, your son was so young, but tried to impart or how you tried to share fatherhood with him? Uh, I have a book up here, but it's, it's was one of the first books I asked my wife to send me. Um, I actually asked her to send it to me like the month before Jax was born, my firstborn, and it's called How to Raise a Boy. Mm. So, you know, just doing the best I can yeah. or I could to contribute to the conversation about how to raise our son, um, you know, always being, usually being as supportive as I possibly could um, with some of the struggles she was experiencing once he was born um, through, you know, my counsel and, you know, little tokens of appreciation that I could muster up, uh, for my boy. Uh, but it was, it was always, it always came down to this sense of like, you know, the 15 minute call is coming to an end mm. or, or the visit is coming to an end. And, you know, no matter how many times I was able to squeeze in the words, I love you, I miss you. Uh, you know, the, the line would eventually go dead or the CEOs would say it's time to go. So, uh, but yeah, that's the best I could do was learn as much as I could about parenting and and um, impart some of the things that I was discovering to my wife, who was already a great parent. She 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 had um, two children prior to our son, um, but I I felt that was the best way for me to contribute. Mm, and you said you read that book, How to Raise a Boy. I'm wondering. Yeah. How, how do you raise a boy? And I don't mean like the logistics, but what sort of man do you want to him to grow into? Or would you like, what do you want to share with him about his becoming? Uh, so that's a, that's a great question. There is, there's a book I had read several years earlier called season of life. Um, and it was a story about a true story about a formal NFL player who coached young men. And, you know, one of the things that he spoke about in this book was some of the pervasive perspectives that many young men are, they, they give themselves over to, they're, they're, they're invited into, and then they give themselves over to, and it's, you know, we hear it a lot, uh, the term toxic masculinity. Mm -hmm. um, 
it's definitely a culture that I gave myself over to as a young man, where, you know, as a, as a young boy, my quote unquote manliness was attached to my ability to play sports, um, my willingness to get physically violent with conflict. Um, as I got a little bit older, um, it transitioned into like my manliness being attached to my ability to attract women and objectify girls objectify myself in the process and then even into young adulthood where manliness was attached to the amount of money I had mm -hmm. or the kind of car I drove right so these are some of the 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 cultural like ideas about masculinity that are really toxic right he he, he I think he reduced it to three things he called it the ball field the bedroom and the billful mm -hmm. um so just recognizing the, the, the harm and the danger in cultivating that way of thinking, I know that's what I don't want my sons to be. Yeah. That said, there, I do believe there are three principles that will serve them in becoming like fully integrated, emotionally integrated and um, like virtuous men. Um, the first is how they live. And what I mean by that is like, let your words and your actions be in alignment. Mm. So speak with honesty, speak with truth, identify what's important in your life and then behave accordingly. Mm. How they love. Mm. So when you say you love your brother or you love your mom and your dad or you love your girlfriend at some point in time how are you loving those people is it is it a selfish love where you you're only calling it love when your needs are being desired or is it a sacrificial one where you're looking to serve the people who you say you care for mm -hmm. and the identification of a purpose in their lives mm -hmm. that's bigger than themselves so I believe I've found that in the work I do, um, in the community I serve, and my encouragement and my, my guidance as they grow up will be to identify a purpose that's bigger than themselves that they can serve. Mm, and I think they're very lucky that you embody that. And so beyond your words, your presence and your energy shows them that. And I'm, I know they're still young. Have you thought about how you want to talk to them someday about your time incarcerated or about prison. And I know this is like, this is your work too, you know, reimagining yeah, yeah. the culture of prison. Candidly. Yeah. Uh, I, I talk, I mean, my son, Jax, he's, he's three, a little over three. Tristan's one and a half. And I talk about it candidly now. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's, it's a little bit more sophisticated, but not much than the idea of, you know, good gets good and bad gets bad. Um, you know, when they watch cartoons and, you know, they see, you know, cops and robbers or whatever, they're like, you know, he's a bad guy. And this, and, and you know, I, I take opportunity to say, you know, I don't, I don't know if there are bad guys. Mm. There are people who do bad things and there are people who do good things. And sometimes the, the line isn't, so finely drawn um so i you know and he's three and he, he he'll seem like he gets it for a minute but you know i'll continue to reinforce um these lessons about people 
and about choices and about consequences and about redemption Mm. and about choosing to do the best with what we have to create a better future. Mm. Yeah. (laughs) I just really appreciate everything that you're saying. I, when we, you and I had talked in preparation for this, this conversation and I had said to you, like, I want to talk about whatever's moving you. And, and you talked about responsibility. And I feel like, you know, we've talked about being a father, being a husband, but I want to get into that a little bit more. And you said something like, you don't know that you can balance responsibility, but you want to integrate them. And so we'll, we'll get into that hopefully in a moment, but I'm hoping you can set up this conversation for us a little bit. Before you were incarcerated growing up, I mean, you were young when you were incarcerated. Tell me what your view of your sense of responsibility was. <laughs> that's I'm laughing because I had none like my I was I was raised as an only child with a lot of privilege and a lot of entitlement issues um my mother was extremely uh coddling is the right word she's a great mom amazing mom all, all my friends wished that she was their mom um but I could do no wrong in her eyes So whenever I did do wrong, she would scramble to help fix it or cover it up until ultimately she couldn't, um, you know, when I was, when I was 20 years old and arrested, I was living in one of my parents, uh, rental properties, rent-free going to school part-time, uh, and partying full-time. And I remember they had taken me out to lunch one day and they asked me because they could tell that I was pretty aimless and borderline destructive Mm -hmm. and they said what do you want to do with your life and you know I was being sarcastic but the 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 response was you know I want to live a life where all I have to do is sleep and play video games all day Mm -hmm. and you know somewhere in you know that was my conscious statement but somewhere in the recesses of my mind that's you know, really what I had for my future was not much. Um, so it is, it is a, a, uh, um, a tale of two cities as far as my state of mind and, and my, my situation in life going into prison and the way I came out. Right. So going in at 20 years old with no responsibility, no interest, no ambition, and then coming out at, at 41, uh, married two babies and, you know, a director of an organization that's, definitely night and day. Yeah. I I mean, this is probably a much bigger conversation, but I'm wondering how that shift happens. I assume you go to prison, you're probably still in that same state of mind. And then eventually you become this like leader, like you said, uh, starting this organization and just, uh, well, you didn't say that, but I, I'm putting, I'm I'm putting that on you because you were. You put leader on me. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I, I heard you were very influential in a good way. Um, and yeah, I'm just wondering, that was responsibility that you chose. How did you get to the point of wanting to step into that? Gradually. Yeah. Gradually. Um, so, you know, my first real tangible transformational moment was on the day of my arrest. And that was the first time in my 20 years that I had ever seen my dad cry. Um mm-hmm. He was there when I was arrested and uh, he was crying uncontrollably. And I had this very fuzzy understanding, you know, however, 
naive I might have been at the time, up until that point, I had never considered that my decisions impacted anybody but myself. Mm. So that was the first time that I really saw and experienced how my decisions impacted the people who meant the most to me. Went into prison and made a commitment to myself that I wasn't going to continue making choices that would bring that type of pain to my family. Mm. I was extremely blessed to have my parents continue supporting me. Um, and I found an opportunity to, to miss the drama, just you know, saying it bluntly, uh, by participating in online or uh, correspondence courses mm. for college. So like my first 10 years inside was really me staying out of the way as much as I possibly could by locking myself in the cell and reading books and writing papers and uh, getting my higher education. In 2010, I transferred to a lower level institution. And as Providence would have it, my co-defendant transferred to the same institution or was transferred to the same institution. He had already started the organization I work for now, the crop organization. And initially it was, uh, it was launched as, a, as an organization to support like pro-social engagements through incarcerated people in the form of sports and music equipment. Um, but by the time that Ted, his, his name is Ted, uh, got to the prison, there was a, a, a new vision and he had an idea to help incarcerated people become certified counselors. So he approached me, I was getting close to my BA at the time and he approached me and he asked me if I wanted to contribute to this work. I, I resisted initially. Um, just, there was just some uh, hidden resentments I had from our crime and from the time that we had served at a maximum security institution where we didn't interact at all because we both gave ourselves over to the race-based politics. Um, but he, he hit me with a, an African proverb. Uh, it goes, uh, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go with others. Mm. And then I, I also read a poem by John Donne called For Whom the Bell Tolls. And in the poem, the, the crux of the poem is essentially uh, ask not for whom the bell tolls, it tolls for thee. Um, the, the bell tolling is a reference to someone dying. And, you know, basically it's saying, you know, don't ask who's dying. A part of you is dying. You're wrapped up in this thing called humanity. Um, and, and when one person goes, all of humanity suffers. So when I, the combination of those two experiences kind of opened something up in my thinking for the first 10 years of incarceration, I'd been, you know, doing the quote unquote right thing for all intents and purposes, you know, staying out of the way, not getting in trouble, getting my education, but I wasn't serving anyone except for myself. Um, and then I would look around and I'd see, you know, hundreds of people wearing blue, just like me, who had dreams very similar to mine of freedom, of re reunification with their families, of, you know, having an opportunity to contribute to their community and do well with their future. And I wasn't doing very much to support that, uh, you know, a community that I was wrapped up in. So that was like the, the second aha moment for me. Like you, you can't really claim something um, until you're willing to give it. Mm. So I had claimed to know things. I'd claimed to learn things through my education, but I wasn't giving it. So it wasn't really mine. Um, it started to become mine when I was willing to give it away um, and support in 
support others in like program development and facilitation of groups and things of that nature. So mm -hmm. that it was, like I said, it was, it was a gradual process, but once I got it, I got it. Mm. I think it's interesting because school and you talked about reading all these books, it can be mind opening and world opening if you really open yourself to it, if you're willing to receive it. And yet there also seems like a differentiation between what you were doing for your education. And then when you really took that out into the community, when it becomes going together, doing it together and into service. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Like, what did you learn about yourself or about, I don't know, connection, joy through being of service? Mm. I guess the, the, the best way, it's hard, to, it's hard to put into words, but the, one of the best feelings outside of, you know, the day I married my wife and the first time I held my son, um, was a seminar that um, myself and a group of our leadership team put on for some college students at a local community college in Salinas. Um, so leading up to this opportunity, initially we were very like scared. We had there had never been an outside community of students or people for that matter who were coming who had come into the prison to receive some type of like workshop from incarcerated people. And we were really nervous, like, you know, you know, here we are, we've been, you know, facilitating groups with people wearing blue, just like us, but these are young college students who are, you know, probably smarter than us and, and very capable and never been to prison. Are they going to see us as animals? Are they going to treat us like we're less than? Is what we have to share with them going to even be relevant? <clears throat> and at the end of that three day workshop, uh, there was, some just incredible magic mm. where the students, the warden actually came in because this, like I said, this is the first time we ever did this particular seminar for this college. We ended up doing uh, 14 uh, all in all. Um, but on this first one, the warden was like, well, I want to know your, your experience asking the students. And we couldn't, we couldn't keep them quiet. Like they were coming up to the mic and just, you know, expressing extreme gratitude and like in hearing their gratitude for what we offered, uh, you know, the wells broke inside of, you know, our eyes and, you know, we were all crying and it's just, it was really a, a, an amazingly rejuvi rejuvenating um, experience to know that we still had value to offer to the community, to young people um, who would be the future leaders of our country, our communities. Um, so yeah, and, and there's no way it could have been done unless we did it together. Yes. I, I love that discovery of your own self-worth through that and what you can offer and teach and heal. I'm wondering what, what was the content of these workshops? Uh, per personal leadership development, primarily. It's uh, our brand of personal leadership is really the cornerstone of the work we do out here as well. It's it's centered around a conversation of personal responsibility, um, understanding that, you know, if it's meant to be, it's up to me. Uh, there is a, you know, there's a lot going on in the world, a lot of things that are wrong when you look out the window, but our invitation for people is to, to correct those wrongs out there. It has to start with us looking in the mirror, identifying our contributions to the outcomes that are created through our choices. Uh, a lot of conversations around vision. Uh, this is especially, especially um, you know, relevant for people who are incarcerated. 
um, you can ask a lot of people inside, like, what do you want to do when you get out? And the answer typically is, I don't know, I just want to get out. So part of our conversation was around like establishing an unprecedented future. Like if you could write a story 10 years in the future where you're the hero, what would it look like? What would it look like? And then once you've gotten clear about what that story looks like, what that future looks like, what actions can you take today to make that future a reality? Um, so yeah, a, a lot of personal responsibility, um, understanding the value of declaring a future and, mm-hmm. and creating action steps today to bring that future into reality, getting clear about our intentions mm-hmm. based on the results that we produce. Um, an example would be uh, many people are familiar with New Year's resolutions. If I make a New Year's resolution to a New Year's resolution to lose 10 pounds and by February I've gained 20, based on results, my true intention was not to lose 10 pounds. It was to stay up late and eat honey buns, right? <laughs> so I missed the gym. Um, so a lot of conversations that get at the heart of the matter of what it means to be a human being, what it means to uh, declare something and to co- make a commitment to what we speak into existence. Mm, yeah, I, when I speak to, you know, your friend and colleague, Richard Morales, and when I now have gotten to talk to you a little bit, you mentioned the word unprecedented future. And I mm. feel that from both of you. I think that's always why I finish my conversations with you both feeling inspired and uplifted because there's this deep belief in it. And it doesn't feel to me just like this empty hope. You talk about these action steps. Um, I don't even know. I don't, there's no question there, Jason. I don't even have a question. I just want to be like, I need to point that out. Cause it's, I appreciate that. Yeah. It's it, there's, well, there's a distinction. There's a distinction between dreaming and vision casting, right? Mm-hmm. So a dream is just kind of like this, this wispy whimsical idea of an imagined reality. Whereas a vision is uh, something that's, it's founded in your current reality. Like it would be unrealistic. It would be a dream for me to say, you know, I want to be the head of the FBI someday, right? The current reality is that, you know, I committed a crime in 1999. I have a conviction history. Um, I'm 43 years old. And, you know, to be the head of the FBI is, is unrealistic. So that would be like a whimsical dream, right? Um, but a vision is something that takes into account my current reality, like where I'm at, the resources available to me and imagines a future or, or envisions a future that I can achieve by making steps today and tomorrow and the next day uh, to bring it to reality. Um, mm-hmm. I love that distinction. And I, I guess it brings me back to this idea of responsibility again, because when you're visioning, it's not like you said, this whimsical dream, there's responsibility and accountability and steps that have to be taken with it. Um, Describe your understanding of responsibility today. Responsibility. So personal responsibility is the 100% ownership of our contributions to the outcomes in our lives. Um, So what that means is you know, there's, there's a whole lot going on in the world. And the only thing, the last of my human freedoms, the very last of my human freedoms is my ability to choose how I relate to what's going on. So I choose how I relate and I choose the subsequent behavior that goes along with those thoughts. And that's responsibility. It's like, 
It's not looking out the window and, and casting blame on people, situations, circumstances. It's looking in the mirror and saying, you know, what am I believing to be true? What assumptions am I giving myself over to? What um, stories am I telling myself that is resulting in an interpretation or an experience of an obstacle versus an opportunity, mm -hmm. right? Um, uh, in, in a nutshell, that's personal responsibility, like really just understanding your human agency to decide how you're relating to situations and how you will respond um, to them. Mm. Um, I'm wondering also your, your understanding of, because what you do now, what you've done while you're incarcerated is, I feel like you, you are a leader. You talked about cultivating like personal leadership skills. Um, what is your idea of what a good leader is? What qualities do they have? So leadership is influence. Mm. That's John Maxwell said that. And I think, I think it's true. Leadership is influence, nothing more, nothing less. You, you cannot be a leader if there's no one to follow. Yeah. That being said, I believe that the attributes of a leader, someone who inspires others to follow, is an individual who has really taken the personal leadership seriously. That's, I mean, don't get me wrong, there's plenty of people who can, you know, talk a good one, have very little insight into, you know, how they show up for others or, um, you know, the impact that they're having on the world and will get people to follow. But the best leaders, in my opinion, have taken a long, hard look in the mirror about who they are as human beings and about who they want to be in the future. And that that process in itself is attractive to others. Yes. <laughs> and and, and it, it actually invites people to believe in them and encourages a willingness to follow where they go. Mm, and what I was talking before about that unprecedented future and how when I talk to you or Richard, I'm just like, I feel it. And it's probably because of that, because you have um, taken a deep sense of ownership to your own personal leadership and who you are and how you show up and how you're accountable to the world. And I do think that's something that people are craving because there's something very authentic and real about it. Do you find that? Well, it, I think it depends on the circles. So, <laughs> and the reason I say that, the reason I say that is because, you know, the cultural zeitgeist is not very responsible. When you turn on the news, yeah. when you read a newspaper, um, when you go on social media, there are many outwardly facing narratives, like what's going wrong in this country is Trump or it's Biden, depending on your political, like it's the, it's the red side, it's the blue side. It's like, it's always someone else to blame for what's going wrong. And I think that that has become saturated in many people's psyches. So when they hear a conversation about personal responsibility, it's like, well, wait a minute, I don't want to own it. It's scary. Yeah. <laughs> scary. It's scary. It's uncomfortable. And, yeah. you know, I think that, you know, for, for Richard and myself and other individuals who, you know, were at rock bottom, uh, there's a saying, you know, you learn things at rock bottom that you'll never find at the mountaintop. Uh, for us, freedom required an extremely high level of accountability for our choices, our beliefs, our thinking, um, which many people who never go to prison and have everything stripped from them, taken away from them, 
uh, they, they think they got it figured out. Um, so while I, I do believe at the core of me that everyone should embrace a perspective like this, I think that there's uh, a lot of, a lot of um, muck mm. to work through um, for everyone to really appreciate the value. Mm, that's a great point. And to be able to like really feel it and connect it and know they're, they're hungry for it maybe. Mm. Um, yeah, we were talking about, you know, we've been talking about responsibility and the sense of when you were young, feeling like you didn't have any sense of responsibility. And then you go to prison, you, you start choosing your, in some, some ways, how you want to show up, what you want to be responsible for. And then you come out and you're a husband and you're a father. And so there's a lot and you, you, you work and <laughs> all these other things, there's a lot going on. And so you're saying balance is not necessarily possible, but you want to integrate. Tell me what that means. Balance is not balance is not possible. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, the idea that I can stop being a husband or stop being a father while I'm over here engaged in you know, being a director of programs for an organization is unhealthy in my perspective. It's just not because my, my wife, my kids, my family is as much a part of my life as my purpose or my work, right? Um, the, the efforts that I'm contributing to, to make an impact in this world, it's all a part of my life. So to attempt to balance the two as if they're like two different things, in this one person's life to me is, uh, is impossible. So for me, it's about integration, mm -hmm. um, you know, appreciating that they are both uh, incorporated into the fullness of who I am and my life and paying them the, you know, the requisite amount of honor uh, that is required for, for the first. So my wife and I recently moved um, and for the first eight months in our new home, we had no childcare. And this is where it really like sunk in yeah. the impossibility of trying to balance the two. Mm -hmm. <laughs> You've got two kids, um, you know, babies who have needs and desires and, um, you know, not many filters, uh, <laughs> And then you know you have meetings over here, and it was like, okay, I need to find a way to integrate. To integrate, which which means that you know whether it's um, having the conversation with some of my colleagues that you know right now we have no childcare, so I'm I'm asking if it's okay that I have my son on my lap when we have this conversation, or or vice versa, you know, finding creative ways to keep them occupied for a while so I can get some work done. Um, you know, or staying up late, like it's, it's an integration of these domains in my life. Um, so I can honor them both fully. Mm, and I like the sense of wholeness. Like you said, your full self is showing up in each of these arenas. I think we do try to separate ourselves in all areas, so many areas of our lives. And this is an honoring of the fullness. And I think that so many of us try to get to that, like, mountaintop moment where like we've accomplished everything and everything's easy you know like at work the to-do list is checked off and we can separate all these things but it's a good reminder that that's not the case and so how can we navigate this um and i like that you navigate it by showing up in your fullness as best you can um all right let's see i've got a oh well, i have a few questions I'm like checking time all right i'll try to let's see how much we can fit in here jason um 
I guess, so yeah, I have one like fun, playful question, but before we get to that, what you're doing at CROP now, um, what does it feel like to envision this shift in prison culture and how people are, um, what happens when they come home and how they develop themselves and, and shifting the workforce for people in reentry? How does it feel to not only like be part of this movement, but be leading it and have it be something that's personal to you? Mm, uh, well, like as far as like, you went back to that leading it thing, like there's, <laughs> there is, there is no dream work without teamwork. Um, shared leadership, shared leadership. Yeah. At my best, yeah. at my best, I don't think about me being a director of programs. Mm. I think about me being a part of a movement that is a long time coming. Mm. Yes. So like in the one sense, it's like, like there's the stress of, you know, building an organization and also kind of the sadness that no one's already done it. Mm. That, that there's so many people who are come who have been coming out of incarceration, going into incarceration and coming out of incarceration that don't have the support and the opportunities they need to succeed. Like this is 2022. Mm. Um, and it's it's sad that you know these solutions. I, I want to say that they haven't been identified. I, I'm certain that people have identified them, but have been unwilling to mm -hmm. enact them. Um, so in one sense, it's very saddening that it's taken this long. On the other, on the other side of that, it's very exciting um, to be blazing a trail um, for others to, to join us. That's great nuance. Yes. Um, so I guess my more playful question is I saw a photo, a selfie the other day of you and Richard on a plane recently. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought it was super adorable because you both had these big smiles on. Yeah. I know it was Richard's first time on a plane and he was excited yeah. about it. Was this your first time on a plane too? No, no, yeah. it wasn't mine. Uh, no, I've, I've, since I've been home, yeah. um, I took a trip to Colorado nice. to visit a, a prison that was gifted to the organization, which we were demolishing and, and selling. Um, and then I took a trip to San Diego uh, with another colleague to have a, a business dinner with a partner. Um, so this is my third time on a plane, but it was, it was great to be on there with Rick. So the, the funny part was, there was many funny parts, but uh, going through, uh, what is it, TSA? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, TSA. And I, I told Rich, I said, well, we're, we're going to be going through a prison experience here pretty soon. <laughs> <laughs> you guys are prepared for that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they can disappoint, you know, take your shoes off, take your belts off. And <laughs> <laughs> a little so, less invasive, but yeah. yeah. Yeah, a little less invasive, but, you know, there still was a, there was a, a, a moderate strip out. So. <laughs> <laughs> that was that was fun and then when we got on the plane uh because you know we i i ordered the tickets a little late so we we were in like the last uh group to be seated and we were so squished in we were super squished in and you know we had nicely pressed suits we were we were supposed to be we were taking a trip to long beach for a conference uh so we had our nice suits on and you know they were, they were nice when we sat down they were wrinkled when we got up you guys just look like you were having fun together and it was just 
so much joy. So I had to ask about a little bit what was happening behind the scenes on that plane ride. Um, do you have any adventures that you hope await you in your future? Oh, so many, mm. so many. I would have to say the most exciting adventures for me will be the memories that God willing, um, I'll create with my wife and my boys. Mm. Um, very, very excited to teach them how to play baseball, mm. play tennis, go fishing, camping. Uh, many adventures await, God willing. So uh, yeah, those are the best ones. Uh, I'm excited for you all to get to experience that together. Um, before I let you go, can you tell listeners where they can find crops, pork crop, anything you want to share about that? Absolutely. Um, you can find crop at croporganization.org online. Uh, we also have a podcast called The Prison Post. And it's awesome. I listen to it all the time. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, you can find it on, I think, pretty much all the major stuff like Spotify, um, YouTube. Um, I'm sure Richard has a, an entire link tree. but yeah, You can find all sorts of things, but and I'll have yeah. links to it in the show notes. But yeah, pretty much anywhere you get your podcast, I'm pretty sure you can find the Prison Post podcast. <laughs> Indeed. Um, I, there was an episode of, of you actually that you had done, like Richard interviewed you. And I, mm. I remember thinking, oh, this is so good. And I knew Richard kept saying, you have to talk to Jason. You have to have Jason on your show. And I'm like, absolutely. But I just thought, oh God, we're never going to be able to recreate that. So let's just try to do something different because it was so good. <laughs> this has been a fun conversation. I appreciate this. Oh, I appreciate you. Yeah. So, I mean, just thank you just for who you are and how you're choosing to show up in the world with such intention and clarity it really is refreshing like I was saying I was I was looking forward to this conversation because I knew selfishly that it would grow me and teach me things so thank you well thank you Ashley it's mm -hmm. been a pleasure I need to know everything who in the what and the where I need everything trust me I hear what you're saying but I like it's new what you're telling me I'm curious, George, I hop in the Porsche, five and a horse, I'm ready for war, I'm coming for throws to turn to a ghost, I need to know everything. Now you be surprised at the info you get is by letting them talk, so I'm letting them talk. Gotta keep quiet, maneuver in science, then let them in, talk up their body, another one body, that's just how it go. I got some secrets, I'm shaking the game so they stay on their toes, stay in your lane, I to stay on the go. I came to play with the pros and act like a rookie, so they overlook me, then I double up again, none of their nose, none of them cold. They just got lucky, but never adapted, so I'm to the one if it's coming to blows, my enemies cutting it close. I let them think that they got me, but what do you know? I had them beat before we ever spoke, I'm ready for smoke. I need to know everything, who in the what and the where, I need everything. Trust me, I hear what you're saying, but I like it's new what you're telling me. I'm curious, George, I hop in the Porsche, five and a horse, I'm ready for war, I'm coming for throws to turn